You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In February, I did a follow-up interview with Paolo Lusing, who I've had on as a guest previously, along with Ramon Ray in episode 168, which was about solopreneurship. Paolo is the author of Startup Taiwan, Foreigner's Business Guide, and the founder of MillionDC.com. Startup Taiwan is the second book written to help foreigners wanting to start a business in Taiwan, after How to Start a Business in Taiwan was written by Elias Eck in 2013. Elias has also been a guest on Talking Taiwan. I spoke in depth with Paulo about his early interest in entrepreneurship, what brought him to Taiwan, and how he transitioned from journalism to corporate life and the startup scene. We had an in-depth conversation about what went into his book, Startup Taiwan. For those wanting the most up-to-date information, they should subscribe to the digital version of Startup Taiwan, which Paulo regularly updates on his website, StartupInTaiwan.com. He also has a podcast by the same name, Startup Taiwan, that I'd recommend you check out. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Paulo. Hey, thanks, Felicia, for having me to your show. Wonderful. So could you tell me a little bit about your background, your upbringing, like where you grew up and um, your early aspirations? Well, I was born in the Philippines. I was born actually in Baguio City, which is a little bit uh, up north in the Philippines, which is closer to Taiwan than Manila, uh, tai- Taipei or Taiwan. I was actually raised in in Manila, so I wasn't really rich. I was I was born to a poor family, and but then I I tried to like study hard, tried to do, you know, I tried to basically wanted to get get out of poverty, and so I tried to study hard, landed myself some good job after graduation from college, and then from there I started like doing journalism jobs. That's pretty much my background and how I, I grew up. What kind of uh, topics did you cover in journalism? Was there anything, a spe- specific area that you focused on or you just generally did whatever the job asked you? Oh, so uh, I had two in this major industries that, that I covered. One is the energy uh, industry, energy sector. So basically anything that's related to the Philippines um, energy sector, energy companies, I would be the one to write about it. So that's one area. And then when I moved on to my second full-time job, I covered the central banks and the Philippine banking sector in general. So so pretty much around those two um, industries um, were my coverage as a journalist. When did you discover your entrepreneurial spirit? Well, I think ever since I was a kid, I was already thinking about things um, things related to how you could earn money while you're doing something else, like while you're doing your regular routine. For example, as a student, especially in uh, in in my elementary days, I would see some of my classmates who would repackage um, candies and sell them to my classmates. And I was actually very interested in doing that, uh, but I never did that. But I I was fascinated about how someone would actually be able to earn a little bit of money so that he or she would have some 
uh, lunch money for himself for the class. Mm-hmm. But f- for myself, uh, I I basically started delving into entrepreneurship when I was already working as a production editor for Financial Times. So because we have like a a little bit odd shift. So we start really early in the morning and we get we get out of the office as early as 2 p.m., which means I still have a lot of time for myself. I opened like an antique shop, quote unquote, which is basically just a place for selling um, secondhand stuff. But if I find something rare or something uh, vintage, that's where I put like more value into it. So I was really into like doing uh, business on the side as early as um, back in, I don't know, when I was in 20s and stuff like that. Uh, so how long did you have that shop? Well, I had it until, well, I had it for like five, six years. Until wow. I moved in, yeah. Until I moved into Taiwan for uh, my MBA. Well, I presume that you stopped the business and then you decided to go to Taiwan. I handed it over to my mom, and it was my mom's <laughs> decision to stop it because, okay. quite frankly, the antique shop, secondhand shop business is quite difficult to push through. You really need to know every item that you're selling, and the key to making good sales is really knowing what your item is all about. And I think that's, that's my strength back, back in the days. Like I know every single piece I would study where a specific um, piece of like um, material uh, comes from. Um, so to answer your question, I, I had it running until after I moved to Taiwan for my MBA for like oh. six, seven years. Okay. So how how did you decide to go to Taiwan to get your MBA? Because I'm sure there's a lot of places you could have chosen to go to. Oh yeah, first of all, I haven't answered fully your for your uh, previous <laughs> question. Uh, so okay. so I was a journalist, and then I I became like a production editor for Financial Times, and I realized that I I wanted to do something else. Uh, basically, when I decide on my career what I would do is to basically just look up one or two positions above me. And if I feel like that's not the job that I want to go to, I would be trying to look for something else. So I didn't want to be an editor for the rest of my life because I felt like, oh, maybe that's going to like confine me into just the desk without really having to go out and you know do what I love, which is interviewing people. So I had to like think of other things to do. And I realized that as a journalist, you only get to know what's going on in a company from an outsider's perspective. And I wanted to know how is it really to run a company, giving me a different insight from like, you know, the corporate side of things, like how do they see things? And so this actually uh, led me into thinking, actually, I needed an MBA so that I could get into uh, a corporate job. And for that, the first decision in my mind was, okay, I didn't want to do it uh, inside uh, Taiwan. I wanted uh, inside the Philippines. I want to do it um, outside the Philippines. And the easier, quote unquote, again, target for me was Taiwan because it's approximately two and a half hours away from Manila. It's basically 
it's basically faster to go to uh, from Manila to Taipei than if you go from Manila to other cities because of the heavy traffic in in the Philippines. So Taiwan was an easy target for me to go to, and I have been here. I have seen Taiwan, and I was fascinated about how this small country could have so much things a first world could have, like efficient transportation system for the public, and as well as very clean place compared to my home country, uh, the Philippines. And also, I have to I have to note that. In terms of selecting for universities, Taiwan actually has a lot of like top-ranked uh, universities here. And so when I was choosing, I was like, okay, it's this is an easy, easier route for me. And up until now, Taiwan is very generous in giving scholarship to foreigners around the world. So they have a lot of windows where people could apply for uh, in very specific countries. And in the Philippines, I guess they would give like 10, 20 spots for scholarships. Mm -hmm. So that's also one of my reasons why I chose Taiwan uh, instead of other countries. Oh, great. So I guess um, language is not really a barrier to studying, to being in the MBA program in Taiwan then. That's a good question. I don't know how your Chinese, because I don't know how your Chinese is. My Chinese (laughs) is very basic. uh, I could I, I could basically talk in Chinese and like English. It's, it's almost like um, Singlish where like you talk <laughs> Chinese and English at the same time. You mix them if you don't know the words. So I could I could get by. Um, but the program at NTU is basically English uh, taught in in English. So that's oh, that was actually a good question. The whole program was actually taught in English. Plus, if you could attend uh, classes in Chinese. You could also take subjects that are taught in mm. uh, in Chinese, which I didn't do. But I I would have I should have done that to have uh, to practice my Chinese more. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting because I never thought about doing that because that would have that would be a, a barrier for me too if I had to go through a program and it was taught in Chinese. How long have you been in Taiwan? Wow. I have been here for 13 years. I came here 2009 of September for my MBA. And I realized that after graduation, I didn't want to leave. So I just started like looking for jobs, doing marketing, digital marketing. So it's been 13 years. Yeah. Wow. And so your first jobs after your MBA were corporate? Yes, uh, as I yeah. wanted it to right. be corporate. Yeah, I worked for ACES for about four and a half years, and then I worked for an asset management firm called Brilliant Global mm-hmm. Advisors. And mm-hmm. then I delved into uh, startups, having my own startup. So what was the first startup that you decided to do in Taiwan? So it's still up and running. It's called Million DC LTD. It's uh, envisioned to be an educational platform for developing countries, for entrepreneurs in developing countries. So the main problem that I could see is that there are so many platforms that teaches um, entrepreneurship across industries, but there's not one single platform that caters to people who are living in developing countries. And their requirements are basically so much different than what people, for example, in San Francisco um, would need. Um, 
because in developing countries, they don't just need funding. They, sure, funding is one aspect of it, but education is more needed than funding, like teaching them how to like really build a startup from ground up or teaching them the very basics of what a business looks like and how you could earn money from the simple things that you do uh, regularly. For example, uh, when I was in, you know, like this is why I said, uh, quote unquote, antique shop, secondhand shop, because, you know, some people's trash could be somebody else's um, treasure if you know how to actually sell it. So, so this is what, many people probably in the developing countries do not know. Right. And um, I'm very curious about this name, Million DC, because when I hear it, um, to me, it sounds, it reminds me of the DC comics. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, how did you come up with that name? Well, the full name is actually Million Dollar Concept. So it's basically wow. turning, it's basically turning your idea into a million dollar concept. Okay. But I felt like it's too long, so I had to like cut it short to million DC so that it could still be remembered. And then there's still that word million in it to have that um, easy to remember. What is it that led you to write Startup Taiwan? I was fortunate enough to have really great bosses here in Taiwan. So when I was doing my digital marketing job for ASUS and for Railing Global Advisors, I was already very uh, vocal about wanting to start my own company and they were like okay with it as long as it doesn't interfere with my day-to-day -day jobs and they were even appreciative that I would tell it to them even though I am doing it on my own time let's say on a weekend mm -hmm. or when I go home um, I was very much um, interested in the whole startup ecosystem simply because what Taiwan could offer for for startups in general, like the technology that they have here, uh, even back then. And up until now, the, the problem in the Philippines is basic internet access, like the speed of information coming in. And for me, that's a big thing that if, if only we could provide the Filipinos uh, with stable internet connection, there's so much creative people in the Philippines that when they get these informations, they could do a lot uh, with that. And to answer your question, while I was doing digital marketing, this, these jobs are actually opening my mind into what further things I could do digitally from Taiwan, serving my home country, uh, the Philippines. Um, most of my job was actually communicating to target audience, which is not Taiwan. So I was doing digital marketing for Southeast Asia, like Indonesia. Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, remotely from Taiwan. And so this is also trying to like tell me that, hey, you can actually do more uh, if you could actually connect to your home country and provide them with educational materials using Taiwan's uh, technology. Oh, sounds like that was a really great training ground for you. And I can see why it led to your first startup idea. Thanks. So what was it that led you to write um, Startup Taiwan? Like, was there some kind of struggle or something that you went through that led you to see a need to write a book like this? Yeah, so um, most of the time um, when I was already running Million DC, I would always encounter people asking the same questions over and over again. Like, oh, how do you, 
uh, how do you start a business in Taiwan? What are the steps? And a simple Google of these terms would actually lead you to government websites that do not have like uh, English versions or they would have English versions, but they weren't actually written in a way that it could easily be understood by by anyone who's not Taiwanese and who speaks uh, English. And based on my background, uh, journalism background, we were taught that any every time you write a news article, you have to make sure that you write it in a very simple English so that you could reach a wider audience and so the, it's not just about the choice of word. It's about how you construct sentences, combining long and short sentences. So I was looking for pieces of information and I realized this is a need that I could address. I could write uh, like a book about it. So I chanced upon a book called How to Start a Business in Taiwan by Elias Eck. And I saw that, okay, there is this book. There's some information about it, but... It's, it's already 2019 when I was already thinking about doing it. So I was like, oh, this is, this book needs to be uh, updated. So that's also one of the things that pushed me to actually, you know, just, just do it, just write. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Elias because we did interview him on Talking Taiwan. Do you know when his book was uh, written or when the last edition was? Uh, based on Amazon, it's 2013. Yeah. So it's okay. it's quite uh, dated. And, and so I really felt like we need to update. And you can imagine um, from 2013 and we're now in 2022, so many things have happened. So many rules have changed. Taiwan has slowly but progressively seen the need to update its policies towards accepting foreigners and having them come over and start businesses. And so the rules have changed. So I saw that need as well. Like there's so many things to update, basically. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the rules have changed to be more in favor of uh, encouraging foreigners to be in Taiwan? Well, the two, two major things are basically allowing them to come over and start a business via two types of visas. One is the entrepreneur visa and the other one is a gold card. So the entrepreneur visa is basically dedicated to anyone who would like to start a business in Taiwan. And without you can even have that visa without having without starting your your business right away you could still come over and see how taiwan fits your uh, your needs your market and you could actually explore taiwan just with the entrepreneur visa i'm sure there's some requirements because you can't just say i'm gonna be on entrepreneur visa and i'm gonna come to taiwan and do some research right like there must be some requirements for you to be eligible for that visa the requirements are very, very low. I think the only requirement is the even in the in the education level, you're not even required to have graduated from college. Even a high really? school graduate could apply for it. Uh, the, uh, the only heavy paperwork that they would require would be um, the actual plan. What do you plan to do when you come to Taiwan? What is your potentially growth? Um, expectation of your business when you come to Taiwan and um, the gold yeah card. there's not much 
there's not much heavy yeah, requirement for the entrepreneur that's visa. That's really interesting. But you think that they do rigorously look at your so-called business plan for your idea? Yeah, so they would. Uh, I think they have they have a panel to they uh like people who would actually look into your plans and at least uh see whether you're capable of uh doing such. Uh, for now, what they would uh, I think in the previous practice you could just apply for it on your own, but in the recent cases you have to course course your application through. Um, uh, they call it like uh, incubators, startup incubators, or okay. and these are the accredited incubators. So they would be the ones who would actually vouch for you that this person, this applicant, is really interested in putting up a company in Taiwan. And so we are, uh, and so we are hereby attaching our like some sort of like a recommendation when you apply for the entrepreneur visa. So there's a review process that's done by accredited uh, incubators in Taiwan. So one of them is, for example, if you want to go to Linko, you have Startup Terrace. Uh, you could also go, if you want to go to Taipei, there's T-Hub. Um, it's actually, I have some other information that's written in my book about this as well. well that's really interesting. So then does that mean that um, this per the person on the entrepreneurial visa will also have some support from the incubator while they're in Taiwan? Yeah. For example, if I go back to the startup terrace, they would actually uh, give you some um, onboarding activities. Basically, they will try to connect you to as many resource person as possible that is related to your field of um, uh, study. For example, if you're studying to, uh, I mean, what I mean is, studying in the, the the field of what you want to do as an entrepreneur. So right. they would probably connect you to some experts who could help you build your startups or uh, some facilities, government facilities, who could build your prototype, things like that. Even, uh, even for a place to stay, they would also try to look for uh, your place to stay. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, Startup Terrace, they would, I think they have their own facility to let you stay for three months in their facility while you're actually exploring. Oh, interesting. That's good to and then, know. Um, and then the other type, uh, which is the gold card, is basically targeted for professionals who are experts in their fields. So this is basically almost like an, an APRC, uh, which is like a permanent residency but you are not tied into starting your own business because they expect that when you come to Taiwan, you will bring value by sharing your knowledge. So for this, the requirement is quite higher. Uh, they're looking for at least college graduates uh, who are quote-unquote expert in their fields. And for you to prove your expertise, you will have to submit a lot of like documentations. So mostly people who get in are PhDs or uh, if you are, for example, a filmmaker, it's easy for you to come to Taiwan with a gold card if you have an Emmy Award <laughs> or if you're an Oscar Award. That alone will give you like an instant access to the gold card and live here. Uh, and, many, and I know many people who are really talented um, who can easily come into Taiwan 
with a gold card simply because they are recognized um, experts in their field in their own country. That's good to know. Can we talk a little bit more about the process of writing your book? Because I think that's a pretty ambitious goal to want to write a book about the startup community and how to start a business in Taiwan and all that. What was the process like? What was the research and writing like? Did you have a team that was working with you on the book? No, it's uh, that's a good question. It's just it's just me who wrote the book. So when I saw Elias's book, the first thing that came to my mind was I need to break it down. Basically, I need to like tear it apart and put them together in one cohesive um, story so that people would know where they are in the steps of starting a business in Taiwan. So it's so if you would have a chance to grab a copy of the book, it would actually put you into the step-by-step process of doing uh, or starting a business in Taiwan, which is fairly easy. It's six steps from finding a name, um, opening a bank account, getting an approval from the Ministry of Economics, getting an address, and getting your tax information. That's it. Um, it's as simple as that. Maybe I'm missing some steps. But what's more, um, for me, what's more interesting is the backstory behind every step. And so what I did was I tried to basically dumb it down the steps as, you know, as very easy to understand as possible, but complement it with stories of foreigners who experience uh, these uh, particular steps. So I basically try to apply what I've learned as a journalist to make it as easy as possible to read, but back it up with so much interview so that people could have um, a clear expectation of how it, how is it to run or start a business uh, in Taiwan. So basically the government will say one thing, which is they would they would be correct because they're the government, they know the rules, but when the actual application of the rules uh, is concerned, different foreigners will have different interpretations and different um, um, experience on how they did it. Uh, and so these things are the ones that foreigners need to know. Like, oh, I didn't know that you could actually, I could actually um, not hire an accountant uh, on my first year running my business because I don't actually need so much paperwork, basically. But it's it's a it's a cost that I think I needed, but actually I don't need. Or when applying for government grants, oh, I didn't know that I have to put up X amount of money, X percentage of what I was applying for. Uh, when the time the money is going to be drawn, uh, given to, to you, things like that, that needs to be known by the foreigners before they actually get into applying or doing processes here in Taiwan. So um, the example you gave of the grant, that's not really clearly stated in any of the government uh, websites or instructions? Um Yes, so these are the juicy things that are in my uh, <laughs> in my book. It would I would basically give you the steps, which are very easy. You go to their website, download the form, fill mm. in the form, um, 
you know, put all the required attachment, including the presence of, uh, including the, you know, a certificate that says you are a company, a registered company in Taipei. And that's it. You, you submit your application and then you present your business to a panel. And then once your business gets approved for the grant, they will tell you, Oh, you actually need to have X amount of money in your bank before we release that money into that bank account. So there are some steps that are not written maybe. So, and this is based on real case study. So maybe the steps are not, maybe the steps are in Chinese, but they're not on the English version. Um, Gosh, I hope the dog stops barking. Okay. I don't think he will, but I think it's okay. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. We know this can happen. (laughs) There's actually, when we started into the pandemic back in 2020, right? Yeah. It's become normal for everyone to be hearing like crying babies, cats meowing, dogs barking as part of podcasts or as part (laughs) of like any interview simply because this is the <laughs> pandemic time. So people have become very forgiving and very appreciative of that. Like, oh, I can hear a dog on the background. Whereas before, <laughs> before the pandemic, these are like, oh, cut and then retake. Yeah, that's true. We Well, we try to like um, keep it to a minimum, but if it happens, it happens. <laughs> Correct. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, you definitely give all the like uh, real inside things that people need to know. I, I remember listening to one of your episodes and someone said that thing about the grant also was that they don't necessarily give you money, but maybe they give you a grant to pay wages for your employees or something like that, right? Correct. So, um, yeah. so these are these grants are particularly aimed at helping you um, pay for either your rent or your employees, uh, and you have to think uh, from the part of the government. For them, the KPI is how many jobs have we produced when we have given these grants. So basically, uh, they could basically easily identify how many jobs they provided when they have given the grant. For example, if you, so when you apply and you say, oh, I need X amount of money, and you say that you are going to hire two people, then for them, it's an easy KPI. Oh, we've hired two people for this grant. So basically, it's easy to actually tally when let's say the year end comes and you need to like know how much jobs you have provided. So it's basically, that's how the government is reading it uh, to be very basic about this. Um, and so what would you say is the biggest difference between your book and Elias's book? Like what, yeah, what, what would you say is the added value that you have? You, well, you already alluded to it, but uh, anything else? Well, with, with, you know, with due respect to Elias who started it all. Uh, so first, the difference is that it's updated. So from 2013 to 2019, rules have changed. That was re- That is now reflected on the 2022 version, which is now basically, uh, you can actually buy the book on Amazon. Um, so that's one. And then the other one is, I added so many interviews that would allow people to make decisions whether they would really want to do it or not. 
So the rule, yeah. so basically, the steps are very easy. You could, you could actually do it, but there are some backstories that will help you, uh, decide further whether you want to do it yourself or not. You want to hire, um, if you want to hire, for example, agencies to help you, uh, do it, then at least you have a guideline on, uh, oh, I'm on this step and this agency is actually not following the steps that are written in the book. So those are the two main difference. Uh, it's basically updated up to 2022 and having more interviews to give flavor or like some re reality into the actual what the government claims versus what people are uh, experiencing here in Taiwan. Yeah, I think that's great to have some practical examples and case studies. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank those of you who have made a financial contribution. We are committed to creating better awareness and understanding of Taiwan. As the Golden Crane Award winner and the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast, we want to keep it that way, which is why we are now working on building Talking Taiwan into a legacy that will last for generations to come. To do this, we've launched a crowdfunding campaign on GoFundMe.com. Talking Taiwan has been produced on a shoestring budget, but now it's time to build a lasting infrastructure to expand our offerings. Find us on GoFundMe.com by searching for Talking Taiwan and make a contribution there today. We'll put a link to the campaign on our show notes. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all of the support that we've been receiving. I'm uh, curious about what kinds of things that you learned from writing this book. What would you say was the most surprising thing that you learned? Well, wow, I have not prepared for that question. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, because I have been here for 13 years, so I wasn't really surprised to know uh, a lot of, to discover so many things about uh, Taiwan. And I kind of expect these things like, oh, they would say something, but in practice, it's it's a little bit different uh, from what it is. But what surprises many foreigners would be how Taiwan is very technologically advanced, but in some ways um, it's not advanced. For example, the banking system in Taiwan. Up until now, the most read case study that we have on the book, uh, which we shared online, is how quote-unquote archaic is Taiwan's banking system is. Uh, and for example, you know, uh, in Taiwan, you still go to, uh, like, they still use this dot matrix uh, printer to update your bank statement on your bank book. So you could imagine that you could still hear that 1990s uh, dot matrix printing on your bank book. So yeah. that's one. And the other one is, how Taiwan's bank is not uh, connected to the banking systems worldwide. For example, in Singapore, if you need money from abroad, somebody could easily transfer it to your bank account, and there's going to be not much problem. You can easily get it within the day, or if not, maybe one more day. But in Taiwan, it would actually take you days and clearing from the Taiwan banking system because they would be afraid that this money could be a laundered money. This is also highlighted in one of the case studies that I also wrote in the book, which is 
why is there not much uh, venture capitals capitalists that are setting up uh, companies in Taiwan? Why do you why do VCs uh, set up their base somewhere else and then try to lure some Taiwanese uh, startups to uh, to go set up an office somewhere else? And that's because it's not that easy to bring in capital uh, to Taiwan. So that is very surprising for many uh, foreigners. Like yeah, the easy sure. access to capital, knowing that Taiwan is uh, a first world country based mm -hmm. on uh, what you like the facilities that they have here. That we yeah, have here. it's pretty it's pretty funny because I lived in Taiwan and I remember um, actually when I was a kid, like the first bank account that I had I had this little passbook and all that kind of stuff. And they still have that in Taiwan. It's crazy. And then also like the whole procedure of how you need to have a chop like with your like a lot of Taiwanese people have a chop with their Chinese name on it and like it's like a stamp that you use to stamp your documents um it's pretty crazy they still use all these things up until now yeah they they yeah. use this and you have to bring it you have to bring it when you go to the bank let's say if you need to update your uh your account or want to transfer a huge amount of money you need to bring your chop uh, with you and and I cannot and I could understand when I asked this question to a Taiwanese and said what if uh, you know like we have a more modern way of knowing that this person really is the person signing for the uh, bank documents and it's interesting she, he said well it's a whole the shop industry is a whole industry in Taiwan, every corner you, you turn, there is a company, there's a small shop that actually produces all these shops. And when banks, in case banks try to like terminate this, the whole, this whole like um, industry will actually be affected. Interesting. Yeah. But then I imagine there could be forgeries <laughs> because of this, right? I don't know. Yeah. And the way they check this, the, the way they check the, the, the stamps are also, quite funny because they would like look at it in the light and see whether it's been, I don't know how they could actually tell whether the chop <laughs> has been altered or not. So for me, the way I do it is when I chop, I usually put a chop somewhere. There's a text so that at least it could be a little bit unique on its own, like where the chop landed on your paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, you also have an interesting uh, book cover art for your book, Start of Taiwan. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So it's a pixel art that was done for me by a French uh, pixel artist. His name is Benji. So th these are things that I actually wanted to make Taiwan, uh, like outsiders, per like look at Taiwan. So it's it's pixel art because I want to say there is, you can actually feel the old vibe of Taiwan in it, but it's also a little bit futuristic and a little bit um, digital, and it's actually a little bit whimsical. I put some of the things that you could identify Taiwan, and if you look at in if you look at the right uh, left uh, right down le right corner of it, there's actually these uh, UFO houses that I included. It's actually one of the landmarks that are unknown that is unknown in Taiwan it's basically built in the 60s and it already shows you that Taiwan was actually trying to be really 
progressive advance in terms of how they imagine housing, which is these, these like circular pods um, in terms of the look and feel um, as early as the 60s. But actually now it's just becoming like a tourist attraction. Some of it, some of these UFO Where houses. Uh, there's one here in Xingdian and there's also, okay. and, but the thing is, it's, it's now abandoned. It's an abandoned project, oh, I think, because the, the feasibility of, of that study was, uh, is, proves it's not worth, uh, pushing through it. But you can see that Taiwanese are actually forward looking in terms of, you know, housing in terms of other things. So that's the reason why we have this uh, pixel art. It's, it depicts some of the things that are forward-looking yet uh, like old vibe of uh, Taiwan. It tries to look forward basically in terms of progression, but it wants to make sure that it still doesn't lose the essence of what Taiwan is basically, mm -hmm. culturally. Oh, I'm glad I asked you that. Thank you for that explanation. What kind of challenges have you personally experienced in doing business in Taiwan? Banking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy. It's, 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 a, it's a challenge. As an entrepreneur, as a, a startup founder, one of your main problems would always be funding. So in yes. case you would like to ask your friends to help you out, like friends from abroad to transfer money right. to your side, you would mm -hmm. really need to wait for a good one week before money could be transferred to your account simply because right. they want to make sure that the sender and receiver are not uh, laundering money. Um, so it, it takes time. So banking is quite uh, difficult. Uh, that's one of yeah. the main challenges. The rest, mm -hmm. I would, I would really blame it to myself simply because I don't know to read. I don't know how to read Chinese. So basically, oh, if I haven't, if I don't understand Chinese, then it must be my fault. But if it's something that's like banking, I think yeah. that's that that I could really ask the government's help to help alleviate. And to be fair with the government, um, I think sometime in January 2021, President Tsai already said that she would try to help uh, improve the, the finance banking system in uh, Taiwan, but there is not a concrete um, step plan. yet, but concrete plan or concrete uh, steps, but at least mm -hmm. she recognizes that there is uh, this type of uh, concern, not only among foreigners, but also amongst uh, Taiwanese. Yeah, in general, yeah. Yes. Um, what do you think are the most common mis misperceptions that people have either about Taiwan or doing business in Taiwan? Oh, that's a good, that, you know, it's surprising that some people would still not know what, where Taiwan is. They would say, oh, do you mean Thailand? Actually, yeah. Taiwan. So that's why. I got that a lot growing up. <laughs> and people who are not really aware of what Taiwan is, like how advanced Taiwan is as an economy, like the transportation systems, uh, how much high net worth individuals are living in Taiwan, like people who are having like 30 million US dollars and above um, money right at their disposal living in Taiwan. I think Taiwan has is in the top 10 as uh, uh, top 10 countries 
with the most number of high net worth individuals mm. living in it. And some people actually don't know about this. So that's one. And people still think that, oh, Taiwan is not a progressive country. So that's one, one thing that many people are very surprised when they come over here and they say, oh my goodness, you can actually see a lot of like high end cars just parked over like a regular night market and stuff like that. <laughs> like you could, you, people could not like think that this is actually what Taiwan is. So that's, those are the two things that basically um, surprises people. And also uh, what I mentioned in the early, uh, earlier during the interview, which is this is a small country, but I could name at least 10 universities that are top ranked worldwide. We can begin with NTU, NCCU, and many other universities. Uh, in, and this is a very small country to begin with, but you have all these like top notch uh, universities. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Taiwan has definitely gone through so much transformation. I mean, remember the days back when made in Taiwan made meant like uh, toys and cheaper products. So I mm -hmm. guess a lot of people maybe are not so up to date with all the developments that have happened in Taiwan. Some people would say it's like a high tech hub also, right? Correct. I was doing some research and preparing for the interview. I came across an interview with you before your book was published and in that interview you mentioned that you're going to have some of the case studies in your book translated into Chinese so that um, the government could read it or be aware of your findings. Have you done that? Have you shared any of that information with any government officials? I'll answer the second question. Um, uh, Audrey Tan, Taiwan's digital minister, has actually received a copy of the book and she was really happy that someone else has done it and that the, the recommendations and insights are very helpful in forming, um, you know, like policies related to uh, making Taiwan a, a startup hub here in uh, Asia. As far as the translation in Chinese is concerned, I haven't done that. And that's because I, I felt like I needed to focus more on the English version, which serves the uh, the larger uh, the larger market. But I have some. That's actually a good question because I had uh, there is a 2021 version of the book wherein all the case studies were translated in Chinese, but I never got okay. to release them. So I would probably put that up on the website as well but not on the book that you could buy from Amazon. Okay, did you get any feedback from Audrey? Yeah, um, the only feedback that she has given me was that she was able to um, learn from the insights of the book. So she was very mm -hmm. thankful about it. And mm -hmm. so that alone actually makes me feel happy that at least someone in the government has read it. In fact, when I emailed it to her, I want to send her like a physical copy. And the first thing that she told me, oh, but I actually don't read uh, physical copies of books. So could you send me the digital file? So, and then two weeks, three weeks after she replied to me saying, oh, really thank you for uh, the actionable insights. So the, the word that she used was actionable insights. So that's actually good. Well, that's such a great, that's a great testimonial. Actually, I was wondering, because I actually do have a copy of the book, and um, is it going to be oh, reprinted? Because, yeah, because actually, you know, Gus sent it to me, Gus Adapon. 
wow. to see their connection. Um, but I had a hard time reading it because of the print. Because <laughs> it's is like, a... you know, the gray on the dark. Is there going to be a reprint or another version? So the good news is that it's you can now buy the book on Amazon on Kindle. So if you have a Kindle, yeah. so it's oh. basically going to adjust based on um, the font size uh, of your right. of your uh, ebook reader. Yeah. of your reader. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good news. So the 2022 version has more um, uh, has added interviews around it has um, more updated information basically and addressing the concerns of the font size so when i just a quick background (laughs) of why that book has very small font so when i was like trying to print the book i wanted to make people feel like this book is very special so even the pages are in gray instead of like that cream like uh like uh, white or yeah. uh, light color. I was yeah, off white color, and I was like, maybe I should make it look like it's an artistic book. It's like a coffee book, but it's so small. So that's the reason why the font has been small, and it's on gray background. And and the samples that I got from the publishing company, I didn't look at textbooks. I looked at coffee like coffee books, coffee table books as a reference and this is the reason why the book is a little bit special in fact the printing of the book is really uh, more expensive that had i uh, compared to had i just printed it normally so oh, wow. so now if you needed an, a more updated version of the book it's it's now on amazon on kindle so it's it's on kindle and i think they have they have a version where they would print the book for you basically and i so click the, the standard print book have- the print book has like standard white paper then? <laughs> I think so, yeah. It, okay. it should have the standard white paper yeah. and font size because I click yeah. on the the normal size of the book as opposed yeah. to the current version, which is quite small. <laughs> it's available on Kindle and you could yes. also go to startupintaiwan.com. It's basically uh-huh. uh, another another digital version of the book, but you get the updates real time because every time I get an information, I would update the pages or the steps uh, related to that. For example, case studies are updated. For example, if I hear in the news that, oh, the rules have changed, I will just go to to the specific chapters and update them. So you can go to- So maybe that's the benefit of having a Kindle version, right? So, uh, so you have to. Uh, so I'm dividing it into two things. We have the physical book, which is the okay. one that you have. We released this in uh, 2020, and then we have the online version, startupintaiwan.com, which is regularly updated based on the current events here in Taiwan, and the 2022 version, which is available on Amazon, uh, Kindle, and Amazon print. The Amazon print is basically up until updated up until January 31st of 2022. But if you want a regular update, it's on startupintaiwan.com. Okay, there you go. So maybe that's a good reason for people who want the most up-to-date information to buy the online version from your website. 
It's good to know. It's good to know those distinctions. So since you've written your book and you're very aware of all these things, what kind of changes or progress have you seen? In Taiwan, since I have yeah. written the, the book. Yeah, specifically in the startup and like um, doing business in Taiwan context. To be honest, there's not much. And I think it's because of the COVID-19. So I, mm. I wrote the book basically sure. almost in the wrong timing. <laughs> Because I've written a book about urging people to come to Taiwan and start a business here, and then COVID hits. So you could see that there's not much um, interest, or there is interest, but they just couldn't come into Taiwan. So as far as progress is concerned, I think much of the progress is happening not from the government side, but from the startup ecosystem side. You see a lot of uh, foreigners um, hosting events to meet up. You see a lot of um, um, like almost sort of like um, quote unquote uh, personal investors who are putting in money around helping uh, foreign entrepreneurs uh, thrive in Taiwan. Because one of the challenges is the access to capital funding uh, amongst uh, entre foreign entrepreneurs. For Taiwanese, it's it's relatively easier for them mm -hmm. to access these facilities. And for sure, mm -hmm. they don't have so much complaints about the rules because everything is written in Chinese. Yeah, that's also something interesting because um, I also did listen to a couple episodes from your podcast to prepare for this. And I noticed that um, one thing that came up that a lot of people said that was that it was very helpful and important to have a Taiwanese co-founder if possible, especially if uh, one of the founders doesn't uh, speak or read Chinese. Um, what do you think of that? Well, it's, it's fairly, it's very accurate. Like it's really hard to, it's really hard to run a company without like a Taiwanese co-founder, especially at the very beginning stage wherein a lot of paperwork need to be to be done. And when you go to, for example, uh, Taipei office, a Taipei City Hall, uh, there isn't anyone who would talk to you in English or there would mm -hmm. they would have one dedicated person. But mm -hmm. this person is quite busy already you know speaking mm -hmm. in english for this person would be very difficult because that's not his main job he was only assigned english speaker of the day to help uh -huh. uh, foreigners so and it's still easier if you have someone taiwanese to help you uh, read the rules or talk to uh, people around right so this is the reality but um do you think it could be kind of prohibitive because, for example, I don't think, not that it's an exact com comparison, but people in the U.S. Uh, don't say I need to have a, a U.S. part, like an American uh, co-founder in order to open a business in the U.S., right? Well, I don't think it's prohibitive because um, the economic uh, conditions are okay. So people would still want to live here. Um, I think if I would be very honest, one of the key reasons why people are starting a company in Taiwan is not because they want to start a company in Taiwan. They want to find a legal way 
to enjoy what Taiwan has to offer for foreigners because of the life that uh, Taiwan has to offer. And one of them is basically allowing foreigners to, and one of the ways is basically is to start your own company if you don't want to work for companies here in Taiwan or teach English. But I think I need to clarify my question. My question was a lot of people have commented that it's, easier if they have a Taiwanese co-founder but do you think that's prohibitive like to people starting um, a business in Taiwan because they feel the need that they need a Taiwanese co-founder to help them with the language or to navigate certain things I don't think so uh, so uh, I think you're looking at it from the point of view of someone who hasn't been to Taiwan uh, and purely just reading things from an outsider's uh, perspective. So this alone, I think, will not deter people from coming into Taiwan because while some people are saying that you need a Taiwanese co-founder, you could also read a lot of um, blogs or news news reports that shows that some people actually have done it without a Taiwanese co-founder. I think what many people who say they need a Taiwanese co-founder. Um, I think they're saying it because um, it would have been easier for them. Uh, and, and true enough, when you're in Taiwan and you have a Taiwanese co-founder, you could focus on what really matters if what matters if starting and running a business is your main concern. But for many people, they're just looking at Taiwan as a really nice place to live. And so mm-hmm. that could probably be let let go since we talked about the fact that you did a lot of interviews and you have case studies which i'm sure are really useful to have these practical examples are there any case studies or things that didn't make it into the book i put everything in the book but if i feel like the case study is very sensitive i remove their names and anything that would identify them here in taiwan Mm -hmm. taiwan is a very small Mm -hmm. country we only have around 1 million foreigners here and around 60% of that uh, is basically working working class. They work for corporations, they work for factories in Taiwan. So we are left with around 400,000 and out of 400,000, I think you could still cut it in half saying the first half would be teaching English slash studying and then the rest would be trying to find a way to start their own business. So I try to mm-hmm. remove any ide- any identification to, to tell that, oh, this is the person that talks a little bit bad about <laughs> the whole process. <laughs> so every case study, if I feel it's sensitive, I will remove their names but retain the story in, in its okay. original form. It's basically what I've learned uh, as a journalist. So you could still tell right. the story as long as you know who it is and you know, yeah. you could swear that this is a, a legit uh, case study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it interesting that you have um, both like successes and failures. Um, we don't hear so much about the failures. Could you just share something briefly about one of the failure cases? Well, one of the failures is, um, for example, applying for government grants. So uh, there is this one case study uh, one case where in a, a tech company, which was awarded as one of the best uh, startups in Korea, 
uh, and some other countries failed to get grants here in in Taiwan simply because maybe the the panel did not understand in full what the business was all about. And and so it, yeah, it that's was surprising. It's it's mind boggling because uh, the 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 company the team applied four times and wow. they failed four times uh, in getting this uh, grant and they weren't even asking for a huge amount they were even asking for uh, I think uh, a million NT which is around thirty million twenty eight million at current U S rates uh, one million U S uh, one million U S dollars basically oh no is it one million no it's only thirty thousand twenty eight thousand U S dollars okay uh, grant that they were asking from the government so that's one fail uh, one failure and then the other ones are basically people who've left Taiwan and simply because when they lived here what they thought they would be doing or they would be ex uh, experiencing was exactly not what they experienced and they thought maybe I should just move back and do whatever I'm doing somewhere else so those are mm -hmm. some fail fail cases of failed um, startups wanted to do it here but they, they they chose not to do you think that right now in this current environment that Taiwan is still a welcoming place for foreigners I guess the only barrier would be the strict quarantine yeah for sure it's it's very welcoming people uh, if you go to like um, uh, Facebook online uh, groups you would actually see a lot of people still wanting to come come into Taiwan and start their business or live here. Taiwan in general is very friendly to uh, foreigners. It's just that some of the rules um, need to be tweaked a little bit so that it's it's on par with um, other advanced countries such as Singapore. In the previous interview, um, we talked about what do you think people need to prepare for if they're thinking about coming to Taiwan to start a business. And you, you mentioned that, of course, they need to be aware of the banking system. Is there anything else that you would say to somebody who's thinking about making the move? Like, what should they, how do they need to prepare themselves to come to Taiwan before they come to Taiwan? That's a good question. I interviewed someone, uh, his name is Andrew Clerk, and he is, uh, he is the founder of one of the, uh, the biggest, uh, entrepreneur, foreign entrepreneur groups here in Taiwan. And what he mentioned to me was that many foreigners come here with zero preparation at all. And they would come in thinking that everything will go smoothly as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, as in any case of um, person who wants to start a company, you, you need to actually do your homework and study the market and make sure that you have some buffer and your expectations are well aligned um, with what's the reality. Uh, because they dream of coming to Taiwan and think that they could just do it here and become very successful. But it's Taiwan is not like an isolated case. Um, every uh, nine out of ten, maybe lower uh, percentage of startups actually fail, and you have to really uh, know this. So, what this means in terms of preparation is that you need to actually 
number one, know the market, know how to approach it, know why you're really coming into Taiwan. And I would say that you should be coming into Taiwan because number one, Taiwan has the technology that could help you build your, your products, but making Taiwan as your, your market alone is not sufficient because Taiwan is not a big country. It only has around 24 million uh, people. Um, so you need to leverage Taiwan for its technology. So that's, that's one. So know why you're in Taiwan. And lastly, uh, you need to have a buffer. What, what would you do in case, uh, everything goes wrong? So that's in terms of, do I find a job? Do I, do I have enough savings for me to help me, uh, afl- uh keep afloat for the X number of months while I'm still trying to find my niche or my, my market? product market fit. Um, I want to say that I really appreciate the work that you're doing because I think that you're really Thank trying you. to make uh, Taiwan and the startup scene a, a better place. It's not an easy thing to do, and I think that you're adding a lot of value. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I think Taiwan deserves the, Taiwan deserves the long-gone um, attention to it simply because of, you know, politically what's what's going on outside uh, within within the context of, the, the politics. Taiwan is not getting a lot of the attention that it deserves as far as uh, policies uh, uh, are concerned. So, yeah, and this is why I'm trying my best from the private sector side to help, uh, you know, to help Taiwan realize that you know, what it's doing is actually in the right direction. Do you think that there are some other opportunities for people who maybe are not prepared to move to Taiwan for people who want to actually do business with Taiwan? Yeah, for sure. Um, So one of the strategies that Taiwan is trying to do right now is to connect to its Southeast Asian neighbors. So the strategy is basically allowing people to come in and out of Taiwan and leverage the facilities. I think I briefly mentioned it in the interview earlier that um, Taiwan, you can actually access Taiwan's prototyping facilities without going to, without physically being in Taiwan. So there is an agency called eTree. Um, I forgot the actual spelled out name of this acronym, but it's a government agency that helps you build a prototype uh, of uh, of your product from wherever you are in the world. Uh, so you could actually build this kind of partnership. They will help you build your product for you and ship it to you. So what they would do is even before you actually send them, let's say, a the the actual plan of your uh, mm-hmm. of your product, they will sign an NDA and a wave saying that before we do anything or you look at the, your document, we are giving you the full rights to whatever product you want to build and mm. before we actually make this prototype for you. So this is one partnership that you could do even if you don't want to move into Taiwan, access the facility that Taiwan has. And the only thing that you need to do is pay for the materials cost of building this uh, prototype. And then, yeah, partnerships. I think I mentioned that they try to like build prototypes for you. So that's one area of partnerships. 
and the other one is basically allowing some foreigners to come to Taiwan and try try it first and see whether they want to live here or start their business. If not, then maybe you could start a rep office here in Taiwan so that you can legally come in and out without needing a a tourist visa or a business visa every time you come into Taiwan. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about your book or the startup scene in Taiwan or something that we haven't covered that you'd like to share? Sure. I think I, I just want to encourage, um, especially the especially for the Taiwanese expat expats out there who are you know reconsidering coming back to Taiwan to start a business or start a life. I'm basically trying to encourage you to support my cause of like you know like basically promote Taiwan at the same time. So you've also mentioned that um, I'm trying to be an advocate of Taiwan, but um, I'm still at the phase wherein I needed some support so that I could do more of these interviews, and it's it's not easy. Uh, but if you could just you know support what I do by hopefully. Um, subscribing to my YouTube channel or buying a book. It's not a, it's not expensive. I think it's only $9.99 on the Kindle, uh, Amazon. Uh, it would help me a lot. And if you could also subscribe to the actual uh, website, startupinsaiwan.com, um, it would be a big help for me so that I could push and do more of it. Um, to be honest, in the last two months, uh, December and January, I kind of um, like laid low, lay low a bit because I felt like, oh, it's too overwhelming and I needed a break and reconsider what I wanted to do with it. But at the back of my mind, I felt like I should lower my expectation and just do whatever I want to do, which is basically help Taiwan and help foreigners here. But I'm also appealing to those who have Taiwan in their hearts to maybe uh, you could support what I do simply by spreading the news or supporting buying the book um, wherever. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a really good resource. And you do, you as you mentioned, you have an online version also that yes. is updated more frequently. How much is that one? Uh, so it's on a subscription basis. The lowest uh, tier is three months, which is around 500 NT. I'm not sure how much that is in the U.S. dollars. And the highest tier is around 800 NT, 900 NT. Mm -hmm. So that's that's not a lot of money, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. But on the Amazon, it's uh, it's 9.99 on the Kindle version, okay, U.S. Great. dollars. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for for having me here to talk more about the book. It's been a long time since I wanted to talk in this deep detail about it. And I also <laughs> want to interview you on, on my uh, channel because what you're doing is also helping out Taiwan and people deserve, you know, more people deserve to know what, what great work uh, you have done uh, with your podcast as well. And congratulations so on much. your recent award. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, we're really, we're really proud of that. I've been speaking with Paolo Leasing, the founder of MillionDC.com, about his book, Startup Taiwan. Hey, listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode and want to help others discover Talking Taiwan, take a moment and write us a review on Audible or Apple Podcast. We also just learned that you can rate us on Spotify. And don't forget... 
If you're going to rate us, don't leave us anything less than a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoy this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.